book of Matthew, chapter 22, verses 1 through 14. And again, God spoke to them in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son and sent his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast, but they would not come. Again, he sent other servants, saying, Tell those who are invited, See, I have prepared my dinner, my oxen and my fat calves have been slaughtered, and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. But they paid no attention and went off, one to his farm, another to his business, while the rest seized his servants, treated them shamefully, and killed them. The king was angry, and he sent his troops and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. Then he said to his servants, the wedding feast is ready, but those invited were not worthy. Go, therefore, to the main roads and invite to the wedding feast as many as you find. And those servants went out into the roads and gathered all whom they found, both bad and good. So the wedding hall was filled with guests. But when the king came in to look at the guests, he saw there was a man who had no wedding garment. And he said to him, Friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Then the king said to the attendants, Bind him hand and foot and cast him into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are called, but few are chosen. All right, you got your Bible over to Matthew 22. We're looking at the parable of uh, the wedding feast, parable of the wedding feast. Um, someone has interviewed or talked with event planners, event planners, event planners, people, if you're having a party, a 50th wedding anniversary, a wedding, a um, big birthday party, a big shindig, whatever it might be, a higher wedding planner, if you have the resources to do it. And uh, yeah, I talked to wedding or event planners, say, what's, what's, one of the, some of the biggest challenges you face as an event planner, and one of the biggest challenges event planners face is figuring out how many people are going to show up. I mean, if you have a, a shindig that's big enough to have an event planner, you're probably having the thing catered, trying to figure out how many people are going to show up and eat the food, and you're trying to figure that out, and, and you can't figure out how many people are going to show up. Why would you imagine you have a hard time figuring out how many people are going to show up? Maybe you've had this experience. As it turns out, nobody RSVPs anymore. Does anybody do that? Nobody RSVPs. Howard RSVPs. I appreciate that, Howard. If you have an event, you count one. If you've invited Howard, he will call and let you know if he's coming or not. Well, that's the thing. A lot of people don't RSVP anymore. And so uh, this, even though it might seem a little bit rude, people just don't do it. And there were two reasons. One author wrote in an article, two significant reasons why people don't RSVP uh, the way uh, we used to. Uh, first reason is, we have a lot of messages coming in from a lot of different platforms. You got text message, you got a telephone, you got email, you got uh, Instagram, you got Facebook Messenger, all of these messages coming in and all the time. Uh, messages coming in all the time and you're getting all this information, this is going on, that's going on, and then you get invited to such and such and well, I forgot to RSVP. So much information coming in, can't, treat, can't keep track of it all, and so therefore you forget to RSVP. But I think the other reason is the main reason. You all know what the main reason is. Why don't you RSVP? What if something better comes up? What if, you know, your coworker 
invites you to his second cousin's 12-year-old's birthday. It's going to be awesome. Oh, jeez. But, you know, you, you feel like you got to go because this guy might someday be deciding if you get the promotion or not. So fine, I'll go. Okay, I'll be there. And then the Thursday before the party, your buddy invites you to go down the jet boats on the rogue. Go down, have dinner, come back. Which is better? The 12-year-old birthday party of a co-worker that you don't know and you won't know anybody there or going down the jet boats on the road. This is not a complicated decision. So a lot of people don't RSVP because they want to hold out. Maybe something better is going to come along. I want to hold out and then, uh, you know, if something better doesn't come along, I'll show up for your little thing. Of course, that's terribly, terribly rude. Well, this is sort of what's going on in this parable. It's a contrast here, which is typical for Jesus' parables. He's contrasting the life as we know it with the life of the kingdom. And he wants us to come to terms with the fact that we tend to evaluate those two things incorrectly. So what Jesus is doing with this parable is trying to open up our eyes to the good life. That's the title of the message today is the good life. And there's two ways to think about the good life. Number one, the good life is my life. And the good life is actually better than the kingdom. I have a good life. I'm living the good life. And the kingdom is great. That's great for some. But you know what? My life is pretty good. So the good life that I'm living is better than the kingdom that God is offering. The other way that Jesus is trying to illustrate that we ought to think about is the good life is the kingdom. So those are the two contrasts he's trying to help us see. There's one way of looking at saying is, I have a good life and the kingdom doesn't measure up. Or the good life is, in fact the kingdom of God. And he wants us to contrast these two and pay attention to how we evaluate these things. So let's look at the parable a little bit more closely. We're also going to be looking at a lot of other verses throughout scripture to help see how Jesus is wanting to contrast our life as we evaluate it with the kingdom of God. So you have a kingdom and a king is giving a great wedding feast for his son. And this is typical. The way invitations generally rolled out back then is an invitation would go out in advance saying, my son is getting married at a certain time. We're not exactly sure when. At a certain time, there will be a great wedding and a great feast. We just want to let you know this is going to be happening. And then at a certain time in the future, that's sort of unannounced, the secondary inviters go out and they let everybody know it's happening. It's right now. Remember that pre-invitation you got? It's right now. And, and so the secondary invitation goes out. And, and really at the beginning in verses 3, 4, 5, and 6, we have basically three different responses to this invitation. So the first response goes out in verse 3. He sent out his servants to call those who were invited. This is that secondary you know, response. It, they're going out and, okay, it's time for the feast. But they would not come. That's all it says. Verse, end of verse 3. They went out and they were invited, but they would not come. It doesn't say why they wouldn't come. We, we don't know exactly what it has to do with them not coming. But we, could, we do know this. If a king invites you to a feast, you are to come. And to not come is an act of disloyalty or even rebellion. If a king invites you to a feast, to not come is intended to send the message, you're not really my king. Not only that, your little kid that's getting married, I certainly don't want him to be my king if I don't even like you as a king. So at minimum, most people would read this portion of the parable and say these people are rebelling against the king's invitation. At, at minimum, a person ought to go at least make an appearance, shake the king's hand, make sure he knows that you were there, then sneak out the back after you have a little bit to eat, right? 
But they didn't do that. No, we're just not coming. It was refused. No reason is given except it is quite clear that this is seen as an act of rebellion against the king. It would have, in many ways, been better for them to give a lame reason than no reason at all. They just didn't show up. Okay, let's look at the second response. What should the king have done? Let's think about this. What should the king have done when these people didn't come? What, what should he have done? He should have, he should have called out the military. He should have, at that moment, sent out his military and said, we clearly have a rebellion in our midst. We need to go take care of some business. But he didn't do that. That tells us a little bit about this king. Look what he does in verse 4. Again, he sent out other servants, and these servants, he gave them a little pitch. He says, listen, try this little word track I'm going to give you. I want you to pitch this a little bit. Problem was with the first group, they, they weren't the best salespeople. We're going to send out the next group. These are good closers, always be closing. And, and, and they're going to go out and they're going to get this deal done. Okay, so here's the pitch. He says, listen, tell them this. I have prepared my dinner, my oxen, my fat calves have been slaughtered. Everything is ready. Come and eat. Food's hot. We've got the best of meats. We've got some Kobe beef burgers. We've got it all. This is going to be a great dinner. So now not only is he inviting them to the dinner, he is also trying to let them know this is not um, just some dinner that's catered by the local fast food joint. I have killed the best of my animals and prepared the best of feasts to celebrate my son's wedding. I want you to come and enjoy the bounty of my wealth. And what was their response? There's really two responses to this invitation. Verse 5, look at this response first, and then we'll look at the next response in verse 6. They paid no attention. So they come out, hey, great food coming out, buffet's ready, come on over. They paid no attention. One went off where? He went off to his farm. Another one went off, and where'd he go? He went off to his business. So let's stop there. Let's do verse 6 in a minute. We're going to stop there. So the first invitation is nobody shows up. Second invitation goes out. They make the feast, the goodness of the feast known. And there's a first response to this great invitation is one goes back to his farming. Another one goes back to his business. The invitation is refused. Why would these refuse the invitation to this great feast? And there's really only one reasonable reason as far as I'm concerned. If you're going back to your farm and going back to your business, it is simply this. I have better things going on than what that feast offers. Maybe we could say it this way, the farmer in particular. Oh, you've slaughtered a fattened calf. Well, bravo, I've got a stable full of fattened calves. If I wanted a fattened calf, I'd slaughter my own and I'd eat it in my own home watching my own TV. They didn't have TVs back then. That's Never mind, you guys are... All right. If I wanted an oxen, I'd go to my field full of oxen and I'd kill the best of my oxen. And because I'm a farmer, the oxen I'm going to slaughter are certainly going to be better than yours. And I'm not going to have to sit in a ballroom full of other ne'er-do-wells. I can sit in the privacy of my own home, wearing whatever I want, eating my food, and I don't have to come up after the meal. Thank you, O great king, for the meal. I get to enjoy my food. Another way of saying, king, you know, great feast. Bravo. And I could do just as good on any given day of the week. Another one went off to his business. So maybe this guy's not a farmer, but he's going and he's doing a profitable business. He's traveling and trading and he's buying here and selling there. And he's saying, listen, I don't have a field full of oxen, 
But any one of the cities where I'm going to do my business, I can walk into any one of the inns, any one of the taverns, any one of the places of lodging and have a meal that far surpasses anything you're going to offer at your quaint little wedding feast for your little boy. The inviters refused. Why? Because their good life is better than the good life this king was offering to them. The king was offering something to them, and in their mind, oh, that's, that's great, I guess, if, if you don't have anything else. But seeing as how I already have all of those things, king, you can keep your fattened calf, you can keep your oxen. This is a theme we read about throughout Scripture. If you want to, you can look at Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 11. I'm going to read verse 11 uh, through verse 14. I think verse 11 might, might show up on the screen. What's happening in Deuteronomy chapter 8 is the people of Israel have been wandering around the wilderness for 40 years. They're just about ready to enter into the promised land. Uh, Deuteronomy was uh, written really just before Moses' death, uh, before uh, Israel went into the promised land. And so Deuteronomy is a reminder again of the covenant promises of God found in the law. And this is a warning in Deuteronomy chapter 8 verse 11 from Moses to the people of Israel as they were preparing to enter into the promised land. A land described by God as a land flowing with milk and honey, well, you will, where you will dwell in houses you did not build, drink from wells you did not dig, eat and drink from vineyards you did not plant. Meaning things are about to go really well for you. And this is his warning in Deuteronomy 8, 11. Take care, take care, lest you forget the Lord your God by not keeping his commandments and his rules and his statutes, which I command to you today. So the warning is pay attention, take care, stay focused to obey the Lord, to stay faithful to the Lord. What is it that could potentially derail them from faithfulness to God? This is what it says in verse 12. Lest when you have eaten and are full and have built good houses and live in them, and when your herds and your flocks and multiply and your silver and gold is multiplied, and all that you have is multiplied, then your heart will be lifted up and you will forget the Lord your God. So this is what happened to the people of Israel on repeat over and over and over again. Book of Amos talks about it in detail. You have your summer home and you have your winter home and you have forgotten the Lord. You have eaten and you have been satisfied. God has poured out his blessing and then we fail to remember the God who has poured out his blessing. And so back in the parable, we have this great king offering this great feast and the people already living in his kingdom, blessed by the power and prosperity of his kingdom say, oh, that's it? A couple of cows? I already got that king. And they fail to understand the issue is not the food. The issue is the king who has blessed them. And so they refuse the king because they already have a good life. They don't need his life that he's offering they have better things going on, so why in the world would I RSVP to go to this feast of the king? This happened again also over in 2 Chronicles chapter 30. 2 Chronicles chapter 30 describes a time in the life of King Hezekiah. King Hezekiah was a king of the southern kingdom of Judah. The kingdom of Judah. During the life of King Hezekiah, there was two kingdoms of Israel. There was Judah and a bit of Benjamin in the south, and the northern ten tribes were the northern kingdom, often in your scripture, called Israel or Samaria. So King Hezekiah is a good king, faithful to the Lord in the kingdom of Judah. And in fact, King Hezekiah oversaw a great revival of authentic and true worship of the Lord 
at his temple in Jerusalem. And at a certain point in his kingdom, he decided to celebrate Passover, to once again celebrate Passover the way it ought to have been celebrated. And Passover was one of the most significant celebrations, if not the most significant celebration in the life of the people of Israel, because it remembered that fateful night when they were delivered out of Egypt, when the angel of death came and spared all of those who trusted God by putting blood on their doorposts, and the next day they walked out and left Egypt. So it is Passover, that great ce that celebration of their redemption by blood out of slavery into a relationship with God. So he once again wants to renew this Passover celebration as it ought to have been celebrated. So he gets all of his kingdom, all of Judah going. And then he has this great idea. You know what? There's more people of Israel than just Judah. We have all the 10 tribes to the north who are also people of Israel who also ought to celebrate Passover. Let's send an invitation to them to come celebrate Passover with us. And this is what it says in 2 Chronicles 30, verse 10. So couriers went from city to city through the country of Ephraim. That's one of the northern 10 tribes of Israel. Through the country of Manasseh, another one of the 10 tribes of Israel. And as far as Zebulun, as far as Zebulun, can you believe that? How far is that? I have no idea. But it's way far away. That's how it's worded. Another one of the 10 tribes of Israel. How did they respond? But they laughed at them and they scorned them and they mocked them. A few people from Asher came. But everybody knows there's nothing to do in Asher. Mostly they were mocked and scorned. Why would the people of Israel scorn and mock an invitation to come celebrate Passover? Why? Because the people of Israel worshipped golden calves at Bethel and at Dan. And have you ever been to the celebrations of the cows at Bethel and Dan? They know how to do church, folks. They could crank it out. All the right music, all the right lights. Everybody showed up. All the best foods. It was, it was awesome. You wouldn't want to go to anything else but a celebration of the cow gods. In if you've never been to, oh, you got to go. You gotta, it's, it, oh, you want us to come to your cute little trite country bumpkin Passover? I don't think so. We've got something really awesome going on. I have no interest in your quaint worship of God. And this is exactly what happens. We get filled up with who we are, the good life we think we're living, and then God comes to us with his kingdom, and we say, is that it? That's Really, that's the whole thing you're selling. In our rebellion, we say no thanks. Where does that lead us? Look at verse 6, Matthew 22. Some went to the farm, some went to their business, verse 6, while the rest seized his servants, treated them shamefully, killed them, and the king was angry, and he sent his troops, and finally he destroyed those murderers, and he burned their city. Treasonous rebellion. That's what we discover is really going on. Treasonous rebellion against the king. It's not merely that they had better things going on, although in their own mind they did. It's they didn't want this king. It wouldn't have mattered what kind of feast he was offering. Another guy preached a similar message. Good preacher. He only preached one message as far as I can tell. Acts chapter 7 after Stephen preached this message, nearly everybody came forward with a rock in their hand to stone him to death. This is what he said in Acts chapter 7, verse 52. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? 
And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered, you who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. So God comes offering his kingdom to those who receive it. He announces it in the books of Moses. He announces it in the prophets. He announces it in the writings. What is the truth of the power of the arrival of the kingdom of God? He sends his own son, Jesus, as, as Stephen described him, the righteous one. He comes and he dies on a cross to pay for our sin. He raises from the dead to give us eternal life. And most of the world gives him a collective yawn. In fact, most would gladly participate in his murder. This is the human heart. We aren't merely rejecting God's blessings. We are rejecting God who blesses. It is open rebellion. The good life. In the good life, in living the good life, which we define here, at least in this first part of the parable, is our life is the good life. Our good life is better than the kingdom. And when do we want the kingdom of God? We love it when the kingdom of God, at least in our mind, can somehow find its way to fit into the nooks and crannies of our otherwise already pretty good life. I've got a pretty good life, and what I'd really like is for Jesus to figure out how he fits into my pretty good life. I've got a good life, it's relatively satisfying, but it, it still feels temporary. So I want the fairy dust of Jesus scattered across my life so it feels significant and important now. Now I'm not merely living for myself, I'm, I have religion. And God doesn't offer his kingdom to fit into the nooks and crannies of our otherwise good life. He offers us his kingdom when we walk away from our own. And by faith say, your kingdom is so much better. So how do we become worthy of the kingdom of God? Let's look at that in the second part of this parable. Look again, Matthew chapter 22. Now we're looking down at verse 8. Still got a problem. He invited people. Now all the people he invited have been destroyed because they rejected against him. So the problem is still having a feast, still got a son, he's still getting married, and we need to fill up this wedding hall. So here's what the plan is. The wedding feast is ready, but those invited were not worthy. Those invited were not worthy. So first we said the good life is better than the kingdom when we think our life is better than God's kingdom. Secondly, the right way to think about it is the good life is the kingdom. The good life is the kingdom. So how do we find ourselves worthy to enter the kingdom of God? What is it about these individuals who end up at the feast that makes them worthy for the kingdom of God? And it's simply one thing and one thing alone. Their response to the invitation. The response to the invitation is what marks those as worthy or unworthy. Those who are worthy for the feast who say are the ones who say, I want to come to your feast. I like you as king, and I like your food. The feast, I get both. I'm in. Who is unworthy? Those who would say, I don't like you as king, and I have plenty of good food of my own. I don't want to come. Those are not worthy. So look at what happens in verse 9. The king says this, Go, therefore, to the main roads and invite to the wedding feast as many as you find. So what he said, listen, you guys, go out to the places where you will find the most people to invite to the wedding. They went out, they found them, and both good and bad, meaning how the culture viewed these individuals, where some were good people and some were bad people, all kinds of different people showed up to the wedding. How is it that this would work today? Here's what would happen today. The king would say, I'm having a wedding feast, and people aren't showing up, 
because they're not worthy to accept my invitation. So I need to find people who will. You know what you ought to do? Get a shade, a pop-up shade thing and go to the entrance of Walmart. And just stand there and invite anybody who will come. You're going to get all kinds of different people. You get people showing up with all the kids and the wives. You're going to get other people who are, uh, you know, you can go to Walmart and wear nothing but a pair of cutoffs. You didn't know this. Some, try it. You can do this. I'm kidding. Don't do that. All kinds of people that our culture would look at in all kinds of ways. Right or wrong, that's what culture does. So you got all kinds of people walking to the Walmart. Who can come to the wedding feast? Anybody that says, I want to come to the wedding feast. I like the king. I like his food. That sounds fantastic. Whether the culture looks at these folks as great people or looks at these folks as 'er ne'er-do-wells or looks at these folks as whatever it might be, you could imagine somebody going into Walmart like this. They've just finished up one of those weekends and everything hurts. Their heads hurts. Their head hurts more. Why would your head hurt? Because they drank too much and they didn't eat enough. They didn't stay hydrated. So they're, they're, they're nursing a massive hangover. Their stomach hurts. They can't remember most of the weekend and they're thankful that they can't because if they could remember most of that weekend, they would be ashamed of it. And they walk up groggy and stumbling and there's a guy staying there. Do you want to come to the, fe- the king's feast? He goes, yeah. Yeah, I would like to come to the king's feast. Does that, is that person worthy of the king's feast? Yes, he is. Or yes, she is. Because worthiness is not earned by our behavior. Worthiness is whether or not someone responds in faith to the invitation of the king. That's why it says here, all, some, uh, some of all kinds are coming. And those who are worthy are those who respond in faith to the invitation. No one is inherently worthy. Look at verse 9. Go, therefore, to the main roads. Invite to the wedding feast. They went out and gathered everyone they could find and look at the good news of the wedding. End of verse 10. The wedding hall was filled with guests. Now, that would have been an interesting wedding. There would have been different languages spoken. There would have been different aromas wafting through the air. There would have been different kinds of people. You would have polite and proper people putting their napkin in their laps and using their silverware in the right order. You would have had loud and boisterous people who had no concern for if the people 10 tables down could hear their story or not. All kinds of different people are filling up this wedding hall. But the good news is the wedding hall is what? It's filled with people. People who were worthy to respond to the invitation. A couple of quick things from the Old Testament. Esther chapter 8. Esther chapter 8. The book of Esther describes a time in Israel's history where they were in captivity, and Esther was a person of Israel who became queen, married to King Ahasuerus, foreign king. Over the course of time, Haman... You're supposed to boo when you say Haman. I thought this was a known thing in church. Boo! Whenever someone says Haman... Uh, there's two things are supposed to happen, but the sound guys, it's hard. They're supposed to play the Darth Vader theme song, and you're supposed to boo. Okay, Haman, Haman had decided that he wanted to wipe out all the Israelites. Why would he want to do that? Because Satan wanted him to. Esther got wind through her uncle Mordecai of the plan and intervened on behalf of the people of Israel with her husband, the king, and they were able to uh, intervene and prevent this from happening. And the way this happened, because the way those laws were written, once the laws were written, they couldn't be changed. There was a certain day that had been established that the, the people of that nation could destroy the Jews and take their stuff, right? 
But uh, through an intervention of Mordecai and Esther, the king, king is going to issue a new edict, and it's an edict of good news. It's an edict of salvation that on that day, the Jews are allowed to defend themselves, to save themselves. So on this day, it's already been proclaimed, you can kill the Jews and take their stuff. Now they need to let the Jews know that their salvation has come and they can defend themselves against annihilation. How are they going to do that? Esther 8, verse 9. The king's scribes were summoned at that time in the third month, which is the month of Sivan, on the 23rd day, and an edict was written according to all that Mordecai commanded concerning the Jews to the satraps and the governors and the officials and the provinces from India, way out in the east, to Ethiopia, to the west. 127 provinces to each province in its own script and to each people in its own language and also to the Jews in their script and their language. And he wrote in the name of King Ahasuerus and sealed it with the king's signet ring. So they've got this edict, it's been written, it's been sealed. Then he sent the letters by mounted couriers riding on swift horses that were used in the king's service, bred from the royal stud, saying that the king allowed the Jews who were in every city to defend themselves. What kind of horses were sending out the good news? Horses bred to go fast with good news. That's the kind of horses that were sent. An edict was written, salvation for the Jews. It was authorized by the king, and it was sent out on horses bred specifically to swiftly get news out. I mean, these were some good horses, right? Sea biscuit, cigar, faster than those. Where else does this happen? You know, this happens another place in the Bible. Did you know that there's another place in the Bible where good news goes out by those specifically designed for it? And it's in Matthew 28. Look at it. Matthew 28. Through all of history, man has been under a curse of annihilation from sin and rebellion. Jesus comes and he pronounces an edict. Good news. You don't have to be annihilated. You can have life. And Jesus came and said to them, that is his disciples, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. How's that similar to the story of Esther? Where's that authority at? That signet ring impressed on that edict with the authority of the king seals it saying this message is from the king. Are we sealed with the authority of Christ? Yes. How? How are we sealed? I can't hear you. Holy Spirit. We're sealed by the Holy Spirit as Paul describes in the book of Romans. The Spirit of Christ indwells in us. All authority in heaven and earth is indwelling in us, sealing us with the authority to go and make disciples of all nations. Remember that edict in Esther. How many languages was it written in? All of the languages. Go out, give the good news to all of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So the, unwor- the worthy ones are out there to receive the invitation to the king's uh, banquet, and then what the king does is he designs people specially built to go and make that invitation. 
And it is those who are sealed with the authority of Christ himself. That is, those who are in Christ by faith, sealed with the authority of the Holy Spirit to go and make that invitation to those who would receive it, that they might leave the despair of their own life and instead join the hope of the life of the kingdom of God. And what we really want to do is we want to set up that invitation so all the the beautiful people, all the wealthy people, all the powerful people, all the people on TV, that they all respond in faith to Jesus because it's really fun to seem important when a celebrity comes to faith. Now listen, I love it when celebrities come to faith, right? But where did Jesus, where did the king send his people? In front of Walmart. The joy of being in the kingdom is not who the other guests are. The joy in the kingdom is the king. That we might get to show up at, a, at his feast. And he says, go. Tell the people who are worthy to hear. Who are those who are worthy to hear? All who are who hear and respond and say they also want to come to the wedding. Look at Revelation 19.9. I think it'll be on the screen. We are inviting people to a feast. This is what the angel said to the apostle John in his vision. Write this. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. So there is a feast coming. There is a marriage of the, of the king's son. And all are invited and all who will respond in faith get to go. And that hall will be filled with all kinds of people who respond favorably to the invitation. Because we see in the scripture a description of the feast of the kingdom of God that never ends. And we are able with eyes of faith to look at our life and say, well, life is, is all right. But it's not the kingdom. I'll take my life such as it is as a gift from God, but that's not what I'm living for. I'm living for a feast that is to come. I'm living for a kingdom that is not yet. I don't need the kingdom to fit into my life. I am grateful that my life is in the kingdom. And that's where this parable is going. The good life is the kingdom of God. Okay, let's wrap it up at the end of this parable with this. Matthew 22 last few verses. King came in. There was a guy without the right clothes on. When you go to a wedding at that time, you're supposed to wear the right clothes, and everybody would have known this. It's a way of saying that you are a participant in the festivities and a member of what is going on in that place. And this guy came in with a wedding garment, and this is to indicate that he wasn't really there for the king. Who knows why he was there? He said, friend, why are you here without a wedding garment? The guy didn't have an answer. Well, you should have answered, I need a garment. Can you hook me up? And the king would have said, yeah, here you go. But he didn't. He was speechless because he didn't care about the king. And the message Jesus is trying to communicate is this. He said, listen, the feast is for those who are desiring the king. And the feast is for those who are identified as of the kingdom. Paul in the book of Galatians describes us this way when we put our faith in Christ. He says, we are clothed with Christ. So all who have put their faith in Christ Jesus are wearing clothes of the kingdom because our robe of righteousness is Christ himself and Christ's righteousness. So the indication here is this is a person for whatever reason decided to come, had no interest in the kingdom. And the communication here is you're not just coming to a meal, you're coming to be a part of the kingdom. Verse 14, for many are called, few are chosen. Not everybody's going. 
Only those who say, I believe and I want the kingdom. I'll take God over my own life. All right, three quick ideas I just want to mention by way of application, and then we're going to celebrate communion uh, together. First of all, the kingdom of God, clearly, it's a kingdom of faith. Uh, We don't see it yet. It's a grand kingdom. It's the kingdom of the entire universe. Turns out God made everything, and he is God of everything. But it's a kingdom of faith because we don't see it as it is. And and this is what it says in Zechariah 4.10. What's going on in Zechariah chapter 4 is the people of Israel are just returning back from captivity and they've started rebuilding the temple and it's just sort of getting started. And some who were there had seen the temple as it was before, the temple that was built by Solomon. And then they saw this temple they were building in its place. And I think the theological way of assessing the quality of this new temple was it was lame, like it was really bad. And I'm not, I'm not even kidding. It was so bad when they first saw the foundations being laid. Some of the older people who had seen how it was before, they cried so loud that they could be heard for like miles. And, and you're like, what? Really? That bad? They're like, oh yeah, it is really lame. It's, it's not a good replication. There's no gold. There's no cedar. It's a pile of rocks with a doorway. You know, it's, it's really embarrassing. Everybody's like, oh man, really? This is it? Look what Zechariah says about this time. Zechariah 4.10, who dares despise the day of small things? Since the eyes of the Lord reign throughout the earth and will rejoice when they see the chosen capstone, that is the Redeemer in the hand of Zerubbabel. He says, by faith, who would despise the day when things seem small and insignificant? By faith, we say, no, no, things aren't small and insignificant in the kingdom of God. But by faith, we have to see through that. Say, no, no, no. I'm not going to let my eyes and ears define what is. I'm going to let the scripture define what is. I am in Christ. His kingdom never ends. And the day of his glory is inevitable. And I will wait in hope for that day. So what seems small now is glorious. Let's not despise the day of small things. But find our hope in the glory of Christ when it is to be uh, revealed. Okay, next question is about your life. What do you want in your life? There's two question, two ways to look at your life according to this parable. You can have your life two ways. You can have your life as big as you can possibly make it, as awesome as you can possibly make it. And some people are better at this than others. Some people are really good at doing really awesome. And no harm, no foul. I'm not judging that much, little. That's just the jealousy. So you have two choices. I can live my life and make it as I can have my plans and I can hit a home run and see how awesome my life can be. Or I can have my life be however big the kingdom is. How do I want to define my life? Is it based on how big I want to make my life, my plans, my dreams, my hopes? Or is my life going to be by faith hitched to whatever's going on in the kingdom? And that's a matter of faith because sometimes nowadays the kingdom seems pretty small, pretty scrawny, but it's not always going to seem that way. Because some days we want our life and just a little bit of kingdom, but the parable doesn't leave room for that. Are we all in and saying, I want my life to be defined by the glory of Christ? That means a willingness to engage by faith in the things that today seem maybe small, but someday we will see the glory of the kingdom. Okay, the last thing is for those who are on the fence, they're you never put your faith in Christ for salvation. And you're sort of noodling around with it in your head. You're not really sure that's really for you. And I, I would just say this from the parable. You don't want to play around with this. 
There's, there's, there's two options here. Go to the banquet or go to judgment. Those are the two options. There's not go to the banquet and, and middle ground. There is the kingdom of the king and his feast for those who have received salvation through grace, and then there is judgment. This is not something to be played around with. And he is king. He doesn't need us to attend his kingdom to be king. But he opens that invitation for us.